Welcome back to another episode of the People Pain in Practice podcast, the podcast for RMTs in BC. It was such a joy sitting down and chatting with Kimmin. He is without a doubt the most passionate RMT I know, and he really exemplifies this in the way that he treats and communicates with his patients and the insane amount of hours and hard work he puts into his practice. It's really incredible to see. We're going to touch on how he drives such satisfaction in this profession, how he went from a stressful life, very, very stressful life in construction to a fulfilling life and career as an RMT and a whole bunch of other things that he'll articulate way better than I can. So let's just jump into it. Hello, Kimmin. Hey, Dean. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's great to see you. Thank you for welcoming me to your lovely clinic so that we can have this chat. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Of course. So if we could start with your background as an RMT, just so we can build some context for this conversation, could you give us the steps that led up to how you are in this clinic now uh, and became an RMT? I know that's quite a vast question. <laughs> that's a very long <laughs> question. But maybe if we could start, I maybe it's leading a little bit, but okay. I know that uh, you have a background in construction yeah. and that you had... Uh, you worked there for many years um, and you came into the RMT profession a little bit later on in in a career path. Yeah. Uh, so if we could hear that story from construction to RMT to the insane amount of hours you put into schooling, <laughs> uh, I think that'd be a lovely place to start. Sounds great. Um, we're going to go back uh, probably the mid 90s. Uh, I was actually working in oil exploration at the time. Up, up in northern northern BC and up a little bit into Alberta and Northwest Territories. And it was an interesting situation because I'm working out in the bush a lot. Um, I'm out of, I had a travel trailer that was on a campsite in, in Nanaimo when I was in town and then I put the travel trailer in storage and I'd go away from anywhere from a season to a uh, full year sometimes. And the funny thing about what's going on when you're in that position is you start friends drop off it's hard to have a relationship it's hard to have like the things you probably want when you're starting to get a little bit older so I decided it was time to settle down and move um, plant some roots so I came back after one season and I sold my travel trailer I moved in and I'm sorry to Vancouver and I uh, first I started out working at a little place called Kwantlen University College in Richmond um, maintenance um, it was a really great job in a sense, it really brought me some foundation, hmm. something I was really good at. Hmm. But you know what I've found over time is just because you're good at something, if it doesn't give you that satisfaction, that joy in life, then maybe it's not what you're supposed to be doing. Anyway, I, I got headhunted for another job, moving up a little bit of the ladder, getting my trades education around power engineering. Um, good job again. Uh, didn't bring me the satisfaction in life because some of my deepest values are about helping people and like making a real impact in life. Mm. Uh, I got headhunted for a bigger job after that and that was a management position at the new convention center. And I probably should have realized that I was in over my head in that one. <laughs> in what regard? <laughs> oh, it was, there was just a lot, a lot. Um, a lot of emergency calls in the middle of the night. Uh, I didn't have a lot of staff. And that was the job that brought me to the point of knowing that I had to move on. And how that happened is one day after the umpteenth million 
uh, emergency call. It was a Sunday. I, I went down, handled it. I came back. I sat on the couch, and I was having trouble catching my breath. And I thought, well, you know, I just walked up the stairs. I'm fine. Just calm down. And it started getting worse and worse and worse. And nothing I could do would calm it down. So I, I went down to the clinic across the street, and they took one look at me, and they dragged me into the into the tra treatment room, and they went and ran and got the doctor. Mm -hmm. And the doctor came and took my vitals and sent me right to St. Paul's to the cardiac ward. And I spent that night in that cardiac ward thinking, well, this is how it ends, eh? This is it. Like, And I kind of made a deal with whoever was listening. It's mm -hmm. like, get me out of this, and I'll figure out what I need to do in my life. Um, turns out it was just like a really heavy level of stress. In fact, if you understand blood pressure, my blood pressure was 220 over 120. <laughs> so it should be it should be 120 over 80. A little higher. A little high. A week later, I put in my resignation. Hmm. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. But I knew a couple things. I knew one, it had to be something that really made an impact in life and really helped people and that I didn't like working with crowds. I didn't really want to manage people anymore. So I went out there looking and I just, I remember the day, I'll, anybody who's, who's been taught at, uh, at the same college we went to will know who Barb Tires is. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I know Barb and we're walking down Falls Creek and she's skipping down the path with a paper in her hand and mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, what's going on? She's like, I'm in this massage therapy program, you have to call Jack. <laughs> No explanation. <laughs> no explanation. Yeah. Uh, so I called Jack, and she, you know, she said, "This is a hard program." And mm -hmm. as you know, mm -hmm. it is a hard program. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, my English score wasn't really great. Um, but I thought, hey, I'll do the weekend intro to massage therapy in LC. Mm -hmm. and, and and so Barb was that first introduction to massage therapy? Had you had any exposure to it in the past or any inkling of, hey, this is something that... Yeah, I definitely had had some. Mm. And I'd, uh, I'd, I'd gotten massage therapy for myself before. And it was... But it wasn't the top. I didn't know for sure mm. until I actually got involved in it. Yeah. Um, because I had some misconceptions about massage therapy back in the, back in the day at that point. I thought it was more of a luxury, right. and I didn't realize um, how amazing it is, like how, how multifaceted, how it actually is a therapy that you can actually treat people. Uh, I feel like that's what I do. Mm -hmm. um, got into that program, and it's just like, st uh, went to that weekend intro, and by the end of the first day, I knew this was, this was it. And it was really hard. Um, when I was in school, I was dyslexic. They never found out. I found out when I was 26. Uh, so I literally, I had to study four and a half hours a night mm -hmm. and 19 hours on the weekend. And I achieved the honor roll every single term. I've never done that in my life. Mm -hmm. And at the end, they gave me this award called the Heart Award. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, for excellence in education, but also like one of my fundamental, my values is unconditional positive regard for everyone. Mm -hmm. And those were the two. So the, the staff, the administration voted that. And mm -hmm. yeah, that was, that was really cool. And then walked in 
uh, got a job right away. And when you started the weekend workshop, did you find that uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, you can be good at something, maybe even very good at it, but if you lack the satisfaction, it may not be the right thing. Did you find that that weekend workshop gave you a tremendous amount of satisfaction or did you feel that you needed to build a skill set or learn a little bit more and satisfaction slowly ramped up? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, I didn't feel I had a skill set at that moment, mm. but what I felt was it was something that felt right. This was the right path. This was the direction I wanted to go. Uh, and I knew there would be a lot of work because I, I never felt like I was coordinated with my hands or anything. It wasn't mm. like I was gifted the moment I walked in, but what, I, what it felt was the right place for me to be in that moment. Mm-hmm. And then is that what fueled you to put in the 19 hours on weekends, <laughs> four and a half hours after a 10-hour day at school? <laughs> well, you know what? You know what it was? Hmm. Uh, if you've ever heard of Dr. Wayne Dyer, mm-hmm. he's, he's an inspirational guy. I, I was reading, listening, sorry, listening to a podcast that he'd done with, um, he was talking about his daughter. His daughter came in and she was, was going to quit university. And he says, no, no, honey, you just got to work hard. And, he, and she said, well, no. She said, Dad, you're just smart. You've got two master's degrees. And he said, oh, no, honey, I am not smart. I just worked really hard. In fact, I had a lot of trouble. He said, I just worked twice as hard. I read things two, three, four times as hard as everybody else. And that's, that's the key to success is hard work. So I took that on because... Literally, I'd closed all the doors, and I slammed all my doors. Or was, I could never go back to the, because I quit a major job like that. You can't go back. You mm-hmm. can't go back into a smaller job. Mm-hmm. You'd shut your doors, and you're moving forward. And no matter what, I want, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it the very best I can. Or what's the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that a, uh, a belief that you've held for a while? And even in construction, it was always, you know, this hard work is the persistence that is necessary or was that something that you picked up in school? Oh, definitely uh, I've always been a hard worker. Um, mm-hmm. come from a family of hard workers and I, I felt that success came in hard work. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of my jobs I got in trouble for working too hard. <laughs> so That's quite the problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> so in a, in a profession like this where it's, it's healthcare, it's uh, in a way it's, I mean, taking care of people uh, it's being s- softer in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, how do you, still implement a hard work ethic when um, you have to be responsive to people? It's not to say if I just read this thing a thousand times, or if I just tr- if I treat this person a thousand times, it'll just they'll just get better. How do you implement that? Uh, that hard skill of of disciplined work while also catering to the softness of, of taking care of people, in a sense. Well, it's interesting. There's a couple studies out there, and they, they talked about this. They did it with uh, a number of uh, manual, skill, manual therapists and mm-hmm. dentists, and they're big studies in 1600. I, I can't quote it right now mm-hmm. exactly. And what they, what they found was there was a group of therapists that seemed to get better outcomes than the others, right? Mm-hmm. And when they, they broke them down into these groups, there was these groups of like, you know, standoffish, uh, white coat, standing there, like doing their thing. And then there was this other group of, who were really present and, and compassionate and had these gifted learning skills or listening skills. 
and they found that there was 42% better outcomes from the present people. So that's mm -hmm. one of the things I take on is like, hand-on skills are amazing, but if you can't be with a person, really listen to them, be them with them in that moment, then your, your outcomes aren't gonna be as great. And when you do do that, when you're present, um, I feel like, I don't know, it's just, it's not exhausting, it's not tiring, it's easy to be with somebody in a moment. Mm -hmm. And with the, with being present and listening to people, would you be able to walk me through, say, a first visit with, with a patient and uh, maybe there's some practices that you have before they come in to make sure that you're present and that you're not worried about something else or maybe there's some practices that you implement when they come in whether it's just questions that you feel are necessary is it possible you could give us those those few steps on on what works for you in that regard yeah um, so there's a number of things you could you could think of uh, depending on if it's a new patient or, or a returning patient mm -hmm. with a new patient you want to realize that you've got probably and this is not science, but it's, you probably got 11 seconds to create some kind of rapport. So how do you greet them? How do you look them in the eye? Um, do you shake their hand? And when you do that kind of thing, notice what's their reaction? Are they, are they open or receptive? Do they shake your hand strongly or lightly? It's gonna tell you something about where that person's at. Maybe they're, maybe they're a little bit nervous. Maybe this is a new experience for them. So you're going to invite them into the room and you, I sit on the other side, they sit on this side. Um, so we've got a little bit of space between and we have a nice conversation. I typically will ask, how are you? Mm. Like inviting them, whatever story's there, just, just to get it out. And then we talk about the body. Mm. Um, explain everything to very, very great detail, how they're gonna get on the table, what level of dress, make sure they're comfortable with, what, uh, with what's going on. Um, we have them, ex I explain each, each step of the way, let them know what informed consent means, mm -hmm. um, let them know that they have the right to withdraw consent at any time, just really communicate with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you also, in, in a sense, narrate through the treatment as well? Or, Definitely. Are, are there certain things that you're always uh, conscious of and making sure that, hey, you know, maybe I'm undraping here or we're working on this area for this very specific reason and I want you to know if, tell me if you're noticing these sensations. And yeah, definitely. When it comes to, uh, I'm, I have a reputation of fairly intense massage therapist, so mm -hmm. I'm always checking in. Um, not only am I checking in, but I'll have two hands on the body at all times so I can feel mm -hmm. if muscles are, in, are engaging. So I know the pressure's a little bit much and I'll ask them, is that a little bit much? I can back off a bit. If we, work, if we start working towards a more sensitive area of the body, we can, uh, communicate before we go there and just make sure they're okay with that. Even mm -hmm. though we've gained consent in the beginning, we want to continue having trust. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, on that line of building trust, is there, um, you can't have, you can't have full trust, well maybe that's not the right way of putting it, but you do have to have certain boundaries mm -hmm. when you're building this relationship. So. Uh, making someone feel 100% comfortable like they're your best friend may not be the best idea. Because, no, no, because yeah. you, you want to, if someone comes in there, they want to be in the hands of a trusted professional, mm -hmm. not as a, just like a, a nice person mm -hmm. <laughs> that, can, that may be able to help. So is there anything besides just being present and listening that um, maintains that professionalism where 
it instills trust that the patient can say, hey, I can, I can relax and trust this person. They know what they're doing and they can help me. Yeah, like I said, it, um, it, I feel like it's educate, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Why am I doing this? I have, I have posters on the wall to show them the areas of the body that I'll be working on, explaining why I wanna work on the, that area of the body. Um, like Chris, professional draping, cr mm -hmm. you know, crisp communication, paying attention to see, you know, if, you, if you're talking about working in an area of the body and the person, you can see a body, a body reaction, like I just kind of moved back when I said that. If you see that reaction, maybe you might want to check in with that. And if they don't want to talk about it, tell them they don't have to. Mm -hmm. It's like trust is, is earned and it's earned over time and it's a part of the therapeutic relationship. But you never take anything for granted in in that relationship. You always communicate, communicate, communicate. Even when people say, you know, I, you know, I totally trust you, and I'm like, <laughs> I totally get that, yeah. and I would never take that trust for granted. And I will always explain what we're going to do before we do it. Mm -hmm. So constantly renewing that trust, yeah. not taking it for granted at any point. Yeah, because can you imagine how if you did not do that, how would you feel if you made feel, somebody feel uncomfortable? That's that's what's always sitting back there. How would, I, how would I feel if I made somebody feel uncomfortable in this moment? I don't want to do that. That's not who I am. Right. It's so far from who I am. And that's not worth the, the small, small miscommunication? No, yeah. No, we're not going to. Yeah, because um, I, I love the, like, okay, there's, I love, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with this. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the athletes I'll see, I, I go through, I think it was somewhat recently they, they, adjusted our informed consent where we need to mm. uh, have it signed in front of us. So I have a laminated sheet that, and I go through each step of the way checking off the areas we're going to work on and explain each one of the techniques and get them to sign it. And I hear it over and over and over from the new elite athletes that I see. They're like, I so appreciate you explaining each and everything you're doing and why. Nobody has ever done that, and that's my love-hate relationship. I love that they they like that I'm doing that. I am irritated that other healthcare professionals aren't. That they aren't taking that extra step to explain absolutely everything. Yeah, I wish they would. Uh, I wish they would uh, communicate mm -hmm. what they're doing. What? Because are they actually getting informed consent? Is my question. You know. Right, and so maybe the athletes, th since they aren't having those explanations, they don't know. They just know that they're getting worked on in certain areas, but they don't know why or even what muscles and how that's affecting their performance or their pain. And it sounds like having that explained to them is, is very uh, uplifting in a way because they think, well, I can, well, one, I can trust this person, and two, I know I'm getting the care I need. Yeah, I, I feel. Um, I try not to get too detailed in why this works or, or not because, mm -hmm. unfortunately, we do lack a real body of evidence for exactly why what we do works. I mean, I went to uh, our association's conference a couple years ago, and somebody stood up and said, I'm going to drop a bombshell on you guys. He says, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, a good way to start, hey? <laughs> oh, and he says, but before, before I drop this bombshell, I want you to understand what you do works. You know it works. Your patients know it works. But the model we've been using to describe what we works is flawed in science. What we need to do is we need to do some real big research and understand why it works. Mm -hmm. So I'm always cognizant of that because I don't want to go off on a model of why I'm doing something 
which is probably flawed in science or hasn't been proven yet. Right. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because it, even though we've been talking about uh, working with patients, we haven't really talked about actual techniques. Yeah. Because <laughs> in a way, it seems like that's becoming less and less and less important. Mm -hmm. uh, one, because of things like the study you mentioned where you know people who are present get better patient outcomes, but also that we are starting to realize or understand that uh, some of these axioms that we've based our technique and massage models off of may not be as structurally sound as, as yeah. we thought. So uh, earlier you mentioned you have a reputation as being a bit of more of an intense massage therapist. Yep. And you work with uh, sports and athletes. Uh, is, is there a reason why you do have a bit more of an intense approach to massage therapy? And when you are explaining, say someone comes in with, well, just say something as simple as a headache, <coughs> a headache, excuse me. How do you explain, I need to work on these areas so that we can get this result because of these techniques I'm using? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I Definitely, um, everything I do is patient-centered. Mm -hmm. So if I have a patient who appreciates uh, deeper pressure, I will give them a deeper pressure, but not too intense, not too in, like too much. I have, I have some patients I work with who are like very top-end runners who respond beautifully to a very gentle finesse treatment. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't do, I, I don't have this idea of how things should be for everyone. Okay. I check in on the patient and see what works for them and I work off of that. Mm, okay. So it takes a few treatments before you're gonna understand what's gonna work for that person. Okay, so it's very, it's very individualized, it sounds. Yep. And is that something that you, you let them know the first time they come in that, hey, it's going to take a few treatments for us to figure out how your body responds to the treatment I'm giving? And Well, in fact, when I have a new patient, I always say, listen, um, like, okay, so when, when somebody comes in, I saw this massage therapist, but they weren't this, that, the next thing, or they weren't, they didn't, they weren't any good or whatever, I always say, you know, Every single massage therapist has the perfect hands for certain bodies, right? Mm. And, but sometimes it's not that they're not good at what they do, it's that they're just, their techniques or their hands aren't the perfect hands for your body. And that could happen too with us today when I work on you. I may not be the right, right hands for your body and if I'm not, I'm gonna find somebody who is. Mm. And I if I am, well then great, then we can work together. Mm. Yeah. That seems like a very excellent way of putting it. <laughs> well, it's, but it's the truth, you know. Everybody respond like I. What I've if I've learned anything is everybody's responds differently. There's mm -hmm. there's some similarities. There's some things that seem to seem to have a better up like effect uh, on the average person, and then you'll find somebody that that doesn't work for. Mm -hmm. So you have to be constantly adjusting and changing. Mm -hmm. And you, well, you mentioned earlier that uh, one of your main goals right now is to get to the Olympics yep. and, and work with those athletes. Um, it, it, this is, I guess, a multi-faceted mm -hmm. question, but we'll try to address it bit by bit. Uh, you mentioned you'd achieved a lot of goals yep. in, 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 the, in the past as far as massage therapy goes. Uh, could you walk us through what those goals were and how you went about achieving them? Sure. I mean, the original one, of course, uh, when I left the other job, the original goal was to find something, uh, some kind of a career that I was passionate about, mm -hmm. that I enjoyed. Um, 
I used to, my wife's an acupuncturist, and she would wake up every morning going, I'm going to heal the world. And I would be waking up while I was working on the job, I'm going to yell at some people today. <laughs> so I wanted a job that I would wake up and it would get me out of my bed and like I'd be excited and knowing I'm doing the difference. And at the end of the day, I would be so jacked that I couldn't sleep. <laughs> and went out and I found that. So I worked, worked through the school. Schooling, uh, I didn't know I was going to make it through that education. <laughs> Not many people do, hey? <laughs> and uh, so I became an RMT, and one of the other things I wanted to do was teach. That I set this goal to be a teacher as well, and of course, back in the day, Bianca Ash was, was a dean, and when, when I graduated, she said, she came to me and she said, you're coming to teach. And I'm like, well, yeah, as soon as I got my, well, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, as soon as I get my hours, she says, no, no, no. I didn't ask you. I told you you're coming <laughs> to tea. <laughs> That's the way I remember it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll ask her. <laughs> yeah. But uh, literally, uh, she found a way that I could teach uh, course PD100. And I was blown away because I didn't ever think I could be a teacher. But I really wanted to educate, too. I wanted to bring the heart back into massage therapy. That was my, that was my thing. Mm -hmm. From there, it was the goal of opening a space. And of course, you can see we've been in this space for about four years now. Mm -hmm. And it's fantastic to have your own little space. Um, the one thing it really gives me the advantage of if I'm not working for somebody else or paying rent or paying a percentage split is when amazing people show up in my space who really need therapy but can't afford it. Uh, I take on some pro bono. Uh, I've got a marathon runner I've been working with for over four years, and she kind of ties into the Olympic thing because my next my next goal along the line, of course, was to go to the Olympics. Um, I went with her. I took her on as a as a pro bono case uh, or a support case, and we we shook our hands back four and a half years ago. She was she was injured coming into the trial, basically the Canadian Marathon Championships for Rio, and she was pulled out. And I shook her hand on that day and I said, you make it to the Olympics, I'll be there in Tokyo to give you a treatment when you get off the plane. <laughs> and so that created this massive goal and we've been working together. In 2017, she won the Ottawa Marathon qualifying her for the Worlds in London. And she came in and I'm like, so how would you feel if I came to London? to support you. And she says, like a practice run for Tokyo? And I said, exactly. exactly. Uh, fortunately enough, uh, I met Trent Spellingworth, I think it's Spellingworth, who's the director of IST, Integrated Sports Therapy Team. Mm. And he invited me to put, put my name in. So in 2018, I went to Valencia with the Half Marathon Champ team. And uh, this last February, I went to uh, Trinidad, to Port of Spain, Trinidad with the um, with uh, with the Canadians that had qualified uh, six junior men and women, six senior men and women for uh, track and field, uh, North American and Caribbean division champs. Mm. So like I said, I've come to this point where my next big goal is to be a therapist at the Olympics. And is there a interest that came before massage therapy that made you want to help athletes or get into more of an athletic uh, athletic therapist role in some regard? Or is that something that came naturally through your practice? Uh, a little of both. Um, when, when I was a kid, I was a heck of a little downhill racer until I was about 12. I remember uh, we moved to Vancouver Island and 
we lived right in a city with a little town with a hill and I used to ski on the Nancy Green ski team and when I was 12 I set the fastest time even over the 15 to 17 year olds. Mm. So I was on my way to doing something massive and then we moved and it, was, <laughs> it wasn't possible. Yeah. And when I was young I used to swim and play rugby. I, j I really, I really enjoyed, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't an athlete at that level, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I was really inspired by the people who were. Yeah. And it's funny, like, who I am is, is not the person who's going to be out there, like, out there in, in front of the limelight, really. I'm the one that wants to support the person that's doing that. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to do that in the background, because I don't, I don't really, um, I don't respond well to compliments. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather just sit there and relish in somebody else's achievement. Gotcha. I, I always say there's this really amazing level of life you, that you can reach, um, and this is when you accomplish your own goals, and this is awesome. But there's this whole new level of life when you help someone else achieve their goals, and that is outrageous compared to achieving your own goals. So that's that's who I am. That's incredible. It's very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Do you have any recommendations for other RMTs that want to get into, maybe they have the goal of, of getting to the Olympics. A lot of people get into the profession thinking that, hey, you know, athletics, orthopedic, this mm -hmm. sort of thing is, is, is what my focus is. Uh, do you have any recommendations for those people to get into sports therapy? It, uh, if you really want to do that, f make sure you find a way that wherever you're working at, there's a potential of taking on somebody to support. The one thing about amateur athletes in Canada is they do not have the support they need. They can't afford the therapy, and they need it. We look at uh, some of my people who have, uh, before they started seeing me weekly, they, were, they had a repetitive strain injury every six months. So twice a year they were out of training. And we've got people going on to three years injury free. Hmm. So what I would say is make sure when you go to work in a space, make sure there's a way that you could take on an athlete pro bono. If you really want to get into sports, then what you do is you find an amazing athlete and you offer to sponsor them and you support them 100%. And when they make an uh, a championship, say if they're a runner, um, uh, Athletics Canada has what they call a personal IST program where you sign some agreements and you can go. You have to pay your own way, but who cares? You get to be at an event and support an athlete. Mm -hmm. So number one is find an athlete who inspires you and support them. Uh, volunteer for teams. Go and work with teams like I'm I can't really release exactly what it is yet, but I am I'm working on that myself right now to work with a with a national team. Mm -hmm. Go in there and go in there with the attitude to or the intention to support and help. And you know what? It's like you know the, there's there's a lot of good work that say you know karma. What comes again goes around. If you're mm -hmm. giving with without looking for something in return things come back like I think there's a line in the Bible that says cast your bread upon the water and it'll come back tenfold well honestly the the marathon runner that I took on as a sponsorship mm -hmm. I can track right now probably 40 50 percent of my business pretty much all of my athletic business to her <laughs> in one way or the other 
right. somebody she actually sent who started sending other people or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I never, that wasn't my intention when I took her on. She was just a human being that inspired me, who worked so hard, and I just wanted to be a part of that, even a small part. So if we could talk about uh, th that last bit a bit more, and especially in regards to having your own clinic, mm -hmm. um, and how even just that one sponsorship, um, the, the pro bono work drew in a lot of business for yourself. Is there, are there any other key elements that you found paved the way to building such a busy practice? Because you are not someone that can be booked in the next, you can't, you can't book, I don't think someone can book you this year. No, no, I'm full, <laughs> so I'm full this year. There's a couple of people, there's either a few diehard fans that are coming all the time, yeah. or you've managed to bring in a, a massive loyal following. And mm -hmm. uh, these people don't have, they have, absolutely incredible things to say about your treatments and are are willing to wait forever to see you mm -hmm. uh, other than say some of this pro bono stuff that may have have brought in business were there any other things that you implemented to to build your practice well you know the the feedback i got from people uh, a lot of people that came in when i was first starting was my passion my passion about what i'm doing my passion how i describe the body how i how I explain things, how I love, how my energy. Um, that definitely was a big part of helping people. Mm -hmm. um, the professionalism. Uh, I have patients that they send their, their children to see me. Like, they, they have that kind of amazing trust in me. Mm -hmm. um, I did actually do a stint w when we first opened this space uh, with building uh, Business Networking International, BNI. And I found it really good, um, really learning to talk about what you're doing and how it goes and networking with people. Uh, but I did have to, I had to leave it, leave the group because I couldn't take any more referrals. <laughs> uh, one of, uh, in fact, one of the things that happened at BNI was I met uh, Jim Bowie. He's he's the owner of Granville Physio out at 70th Granville, the best physio in the world. There's a little plug for Jim. <laughs> no, but he is. He's he's fantastic. Uh, he was the one that sent me my marathon runner in first. He was so inspired. We sat and talked and geeked up about body for this whole meeting, and he he basically sent me that marathon runner. So making relationships with really really great practitioners. So if if you have somebody with an issue and you know a physio would, they have something within their scope of practice that would really help, and you know a really great physio, you can refer somebody on, that, that helps you too. And as you're referring to people, not expecting referrals back, just, you know, this is the best mm -hmm. person to see. So a lot of times they'll, they'll send people back. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can see the cards on the desk. We, we've, mm -hmm. got, uh, yeah. we've got a referral network that we okay. use. Um, Say if somebody's having a really tough time emotionally, we're we're you know this is not within our scope of practice. I can sit there and I can be very supportive and really like, you know, what can like how can I help you? But then I can go, hey, listen, I have this amazing counselor, and she really works in that area, and she's great, and she's compassionate, somebody I really trust. Will you take her card? Will mm -hmm. you give her a call? Because. Mm -hmm. We wanna we wanna make sure we stay within our scope, and mm -hmm. we because somebody else is better equipped to handle that than we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there any resources you go to besides, uh, say, your referral network? If if in the case, 
uh, you are you're stumped with a with a patient, but it you know that it's within your scope. You know, it's not some emotional baggage. It's not some dietary problem, mm-hmm. etc. What is your process, if you have one, for figuring out these uh, cases that are, are don't seem to be improving? Uh, definitely, I've got a network of people that I'll talk to. Um, as I, when I was teaching at the school, it would be like you could grab any one of these people with like, you could, you could be in a circle with 150 years of experience and go, hey, listen, I got this. And yeah, just finding people who I really respect, people who work in that direction. And honestly, when so I get stumped with somebody, I usually try to find the, them another practitioner to see. Mm-hmm. Um, because if what I'm doing isn't working, I, I don't, care about business in a percent of making money. I don't care about that. I care about a person getting better. So I'm going to find them somebody who's going to be able to like assess it, take a look at it, and maybe their their techniques are going to be better for that. Because mm. I'm not going to have somebody keep on coming over and over and get, not get better. That's that's not a very good model. <laughs> Depends who you ask. I think. <laughs> uh, one of the... Uh, one of the things I've heard you talk about in the past, and I'm not too sure to, to what degree that uh, you still are invested in it, is the uh, treatment of iliopsoas yeah. and how much of an impact that can make on certain patients. Would you be able to just give give me a rundown of, maybe that's a little bit too broad, but of, of yeah. what led you to having a special interest in this area and what sort of good outcomes you've had? Yeah. Um I forget what his last name, Rob. He was one of the clinic instructors. You remember Rob, mm-hmm. a big guy? Yeah, Santos. De Santos, yeah. yeah Rob Santos. Rob came in to one of my tra- uh, treatments one day, and he taught me how to do this iliopsoas release, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, deep hip flexor. I know there's there's a lot of uh, people communi- put, it, put it out there that you can't palpate iliopsoas. Well... You can palpate the in, inside of the ilia, and you can do a resisted hip flexion, flexion and feel the tendon pop in your hands. And if you're doing a resisted hip, the hip flexion, the only thing that's going to pop really is that that bottom end of the psoas tendon coming down to join with the iliacus. So you can palpate it. Um, we were taught to work our way through a small intestine. That's insane. You can't do that. <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna get to those fibers. But what you can get to the idea of it is is you can get to in between. It's called the intermuscular septum. I also, uh, anatomy trains talked about it too. I did anatomy trains. Mm. So if you think of iliac is coming inside and ileos uh, and psoas coming down, they join in a common tendon. And for some reason, I don't know why, because we don't understand why things work. If we open up that space a little bit, it seems to help with back pain. I remember one of the first, first people that I really saw a big difference was a woman from Brazil at my old uh, clinic. Mm. And she had 16 years of back pain. She'd seen everybody under the sun. And nothing's ever helped. And she came in and we started working on the psoas and just getting down in between and opening it up and, and trying to dive on the inside of the ilia and just keep on opening that up. And I, on the 16th, like she literally came once a week for 16 weeks. <laughs> and on the 16th week, she, w- she walked in, she sat down in the chair and she burst into tears. I'm like, are you okay? She <laughs> says, there's no pain, there's no pain. She gave me a big bag of coffee. I love coffee, by the way. <laughs> um, 
And th that's when I started seeing it. Now, interestingly enough, like recently, I, now, you know, through my whole, my whole people showing up, I, I'm working with, there's a, a doctorate in sports psychology that sees me and she's now sending me some really amazing athletes. And I saw a uh, pro cyclist for a month and she had the typical thing. So uh, how about I walk you through how I see it? I would love that. Okay, so commonly what, what, what you get is you get somebody with some back pain, right? But not just back, uh, like low back pain, you know, if you looked at trigger point charts, which are as well, they're not, they're, they're not um, solid in science, but I don't really have another explanation for it yet. <laughs> uh, so you're gonna have some low, lap, low lumbar back pain. And when it comes to athletes, they'll be, they'll be talking about something along the lines as, oh, my physio's trying to get my glutes to fire and they won't fire. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the other things you'll see is a lot of hypertonicity in the secondary hip flexors like, you know, rectus femoris and TFL and sartorius are all really angry. And really common is they'll, they'll maybe able to be diagnosed with a hamstring tendinopathy at, at the ischial tuberosity. Now, let me explain what I believe. What I believe is if the psoas is in a contraction because the thought process that the friction over time causes damage healed by fibroblasts, sticking that tendon, those two tendons together, pulling that, pulling that psoas off its uh, proprioceptive line, the brain has one thought process. Now, none of this is proven, by the way. This is just my thought process, my hypotheses. I like it. Uh, pulling, pulling that psoas off its proprioceptive line because the brain has proprioception, the only answer a brain has if something's wrong is muscle guarding, so putting it into contraction, right? And if you remember reciprocal inhibition, now my hypothesis is that if that psoas is in a contraction, and then reciprocal inhibition will say that, uh, so as is your major hip flexor, so your, or your prime mover of hip flexion, so your prime mover of hip, hip extension with your glute maximus will not be firing properly because it'll be partially inhibited. Mm. So if that glute maximus is inhibited, then what happens is the hamstrings take over for hip extension because they have a dual purpose, they cross the hip. And that's why you'll get such pain at that ischial tuberosity. And then of course, uh, all the secondary hip flexors will be overworking trying to do the hip flexing that the psoas is not doing. And when we start getting into that, that opening up of that area into the iliopsoas in between the tendon, and the, the cyclist told me she was doing endurance work. Um, she came in the last time I saw her before she headed for her European tour for three months. She said, you know, I feel like my glutes are underneath me now. I'm like, how long's that been going on? She says, about three weeks. Yeah, just after you saw me the first time. She said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I said, no, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm not, not all, I just really appreciate that it seems like there, this has a definite effect. It seems like it, this works. It, that's what it looks like to me. Like, like I said, I, if I'm ever going to do any research, it's going to be around this area. If, uh, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the patient outcomes are good, mm -hmm. that's the main thing, right? Yeah, like they like they said, um, like they said, if we don't know why what we do works, um, so we've got to be careful how we describe it. But it it seems to work. 
and I see it over and over again. Is there anything you give these patients to do on their own to work through their own psoas or iliopsoas? Oh yeah, oh yeah, there's a really great, uh, I love this, um, in fact, uh, a guy named Brent Satchel, he's, uh, he, he's, from, he's from back east, um, from Kingston. He was down in Trinidad with me and he gave an exercise to me that I've been giving to people lately and it actually, um, now when I test them, because of course when I'm trying to prove it's iliopsoas, I do do uh, iliopsoas minor muscle test and a glute max muscle test and then I, palp, I put a stretch into the psoas area and then we retest and we see there's a marked improvement in strength. Mm. Um, he gave me this great exercise, so get yourself an exercise band. Uh, you can wrap it around uh, one foot that's gonna stay on the ground, put it at the top of the other, other foot. You do a quick concentric mm, of hip flexion, of hip flexion yeah. and then a slow eccentric. And if you could imagine so if you go up quick and down, it's causing kind of, like it's kind of opening up that in between that iliacus and the psoas. And some of my runners, um, the newer runners, I started giving this to them and do a couple treatments of psoas and then start testing them after that and it's strong. And so we'll get them to do that as an activation. It's an exercise and a, and a pre-event activation as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's the the bands are around the ankles and they're doing it with their legs yeah. straight. Or? Um, under under the under the foot, just under the foot. Sorry. Yeah, and on top of the, fo- the other foot. Under the foot and on top of the other foot. Yep. Okay. And that's your go-to. That's now my go-to. Like there was other things like stretching and stuff that will will also like deep lunges, dropping back heel, um, kind of like a warrior stance, mm-hmm. uh, things like that to stretch them. It's really hard to stretch that muscle. Have you read into much about how? Uh, even just the viscera around the area maybe affecting the lower back or, or, or different areas that you're trying to treat and maybe it's, it's a result of the viscera or the actual muscle itself? Does it, do you have anything to speak on in that regard? No, I've definitely taken a look at some and some of the courses I've, took, I've taken have been around the viscera and such. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this kind of treatment that I'm talking about is probably something I do more with athletes as mm-hmm. well. Okay, as opposed to just general Well, I, it depends. It depends on what's going on because it's, if, typically my psoas treatment, if they're, if they're strong in, in hip flexion and hip extension and they're having back pain, I would avoid, I usually avoid psoas because it's a, it's a, it's a sensitive place to work on somebody and if they're not having a problem with those two things, I don't believe that that's where the issue is because I mean, your low back pain can come, be coming from your glutes. It can be coming from the the uh, like facet joints. It can be coming from the area around QL. There's so many ways this could happen. It could be coming from fascia. It could it could be coming from even a history of arthroscopic surgery. Scar tissue in in the abdomen can radiate as back pain 10, 15 years later. So there's a lot of ways back pain can come in. Right. Yeah. Just one, but this is just one aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like I haven't really headed towards um, visceral too much because I, I always feel like uh, you want to be really good at what you're doing. And there's a lot more left to learn where I am right now. Mm-hmm. So that I think this is a good area to start wrapping up on because I awesome. don't want to take up too too much of your time. <laughs> okay. Um, is there 
if uh, I, I'll just ask you one more question, sure. and then if there's anything else you want to mention, yeah. whether it's just uh, where people can find you, uh, if people want to check out your clinic, various other mm -hmm. things. Uh, but is there anything other than the Olympics right now that you're uh, that that gets you really excited about that you're working towards? Uh, you mentioned earlier you wanted to work in a profession where you woke up out of bed, ran over to your job, had an amazing day, and then couldn't get back to sleep. Yeah. How exciting <laughs> it was! Uh, is there anything? Uh, maybe it is the Olympics, but uh, is there anything else that? gives you that sense of joy and fulfillment uh and it could be it could even be outside of the rmp profession but yeah. is there anything that uh that you can speak to on that well i'm having a gas with ph uh, photography mm. right now yes i can tell <laughs> about, about three months ago uh, you know it's funny i realized i was working 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 and i love it it's awesome and I remember one of my runners was having this rough time and all they're doing is running and I, w I went to give them some advice, like you gotta have something on outside of running, right? Mm -hmm. And this runner was a really great photographer. Why don't you take up for photography? And then I realized, if I'm gonna give somebody advice like that, what the hell am I doing not having something like that? So I went out and I bought myself a camera and I've been taking pictures at events and it's, it's a blast. Mm -hmm. um, so. So I have something outside, it, it gasses me, and I'm I'm driven. I some days I'm I'm working away, and I'm like, oh, I want to take some pictures this weekend. Where do I want to go? Uh -huh. But honestly, the one thing that really gasses me anytime um, in in my practice is when somebody says they're feeling better. Hmm. Like, that's that's why I do it. I don't. It's funny. I don't really care too much about the money. I don't really care about being busy, and I really don't care from I'll probably brush aside any kind of compliment or anything but when somebody says they're feeling better man that's 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 worth it that's it feeling better yeah two simple words yeah feeling better or they can run again or whatever like that's that's why I do it well thank you for sharing all of that with us Kevin that is amazing to hear is there anything else you want to Mention departing words, last comments. Yeah, uh, like like we said at the beginning, like for anybody who's a massage therapist, um, if you made it through this program, as soon as you, you you guys all have great hand skills, you're all going to be great, right? But who you're being with people is going to be way more important than what you're doing. Who you are, not what you're doing. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Kevin. Thanks, Dean. And we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a share so that we can spread the word. One more thing before you head off that I think will be really useful is that I've started a Facebook page for RMTs to do massage trades so that we can give each other easier access to treatments and hopefully learn from each other. If you're interested, head over to the Facebook page. It's facebook.com groups slash PPP three P's trade.